0: A few weeks ago, my family and I watched a, um, an old movie. It's called Lawrence of Arabia. And at one point in that movie, a, a young man falls into quicksand. And when a person steps into quicksand, the immediate instinctive response is to struggle. It's to pedal one's feet and flail the arms almost as though they're swimming. And that's, that's understandable because when you feel like you're, you're sinking... The natural response is to fight and do everything you can to stay afloat. But in quicksand, the less movement the person makes, the better. Their struggle actually makes them sink more quickly. So in quicksand, a person needs to stop struggling, look up, and wait for someone else to come pull them out. Last week, we began the first of four weeks looking at Psalm 86. It's a prayer that David lifts up to God in desperation. I know that a number of you are in desperate times right now, or maybe you see desperate times potentially in the future on the horizon, not too far off. And the principles in this prayer, I want to be clear on this, these are applicable to us today. The first section that we looked at last week I called the cry for help. David didn't say why he needed help, but he was crying out for it. In the second section that we'll look at today, David focuses on the helper. The first section is it's like a struggle, as though he had just fallen into quicksand. He's flailing about in desperation, asking for salvation, crying out for help and relief. In the second section, it's as though he takes a break from struggling. He stops. He even takes a break From crying out and asking for help. He looks up, he rests, and he waits. He looks up out of the quicksand of his desperation, remembering and considering who the Helper is. Who is it that he's been crying out to? Now if you read this psalm out loud to yourself and you're you're reading it with attention and with expression, you're going to arrive at verse 8 and notice that there's a sense of relief and peace as we move from the first desperate struggle to the contemplation and affirmation of the nature of the Helper. So I'm going to read both of these sections today. I'll start with what we looked at last week and then continue in verses 8 through 10. Hear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Guard my life, for I am devoted to you. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I call to you all day long. Bring joy to your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. You are forgiving and good, O Lord, abounding in love to all who call to you. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry for mercy. In the day of my trouble, I will call to you, for you will answer me. Among the gods, there is none like you, O Lord no deeds can compare with yours all the nations you have made will come and worship before you O lord they will bring glory to your name for you are great and do marvelous deeds you alone are god before we get into the message of this section i want to draw your attention to its structure back in january I introduced you to the Hebrew poetic device called chiasm or chiastic structure. A method used by Hebrew writers and poets to draw attention to the central point or theme that they most want to communicate. And even though these are only three verses, they're designed in chiastic structure in order to reveal three aspects of God's character. With the emphasis on the one in the middle. Those three characteristics are, here we go, the first one is God's absolute uniqueness. The second is God's incomparable acts. And the third is God's supreme authority. Now, you'll remember with chiastic structure, there's a statement at the beginning that corresponds to a statement at the end. And then there's a second statement that corresponds to the next to last statement. And then we eventually get to the middle where today we have two corresponding statements. Now, if we could get that first slide put up there, we see that the first point is God's absolute uniqueness. And in this case, the chiasm is the first part of verse 8 corresponds to the last part of verse 10. The first statement is, among the gods, there is none like you. And then the last statement is, you alone are God. So these two are reflecting on each other. When I was a a young boy, I read dozens of books that were about two brothers called the Hardy Boys, Frank and Joe Hardy. I read dozens of these books. I had over 20 of them. I owned them. Every time we went to a, a town where I had an opportunity to go to a library, I would look to see if they had more uh, hardy boy books. They, they were two brothers who were the sons of a detective. They had the most cool life you can imagine. Their father was a private detective. They themselves had become detectives. They were 17 years old. They had a speedboat that was their own. They had an ice boat. Um, they, were, they had motorcycles. I mean, these boys, they lived the dream life. But as I grew older, I began to notice that the plots were all the same. So the books would have different titles, different covers. They might take place in different locations. But the, 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 the plot and the flow of the plot, they were all the same. They were the same stories. Nothing made the stories unique. Nothing made them stand out. Uh, when I was a little bit older, I found out that my dad read Hardy Boy books when he was a kid and I started to realize he actually still had some. Pastor Bill still had some and I still have some of those books that were his. Today you have to turn the pages very carefully or they crack and fall apart. They're all yellow. And I noticed that these books that were written when Pastor Bill was young and the books that were written when I was young were by the same author. Franklin W. Dixon. Eventually I found out that Franklin W. Dixon was not a real person. Um, Someone had designed a general plot outline and they sent this plot outline to a lot of different writers and the writers had to follow that plot line and they would all write it and they'd receive some money for writing this book and then they would put the the author title, Franklin W. Dixon, on it. But there was nothing unique. And so it is, as, as David says here, with the idols of the nations. Every god, and when I'm saying god here, I'm talking about lowercase g. You'll notice that's what David uses in the text. Among the gods... Lowercase g, so he's saying among the idols, the idols of the nations, they're all the same. Every god is like every other other god. Why? Because they're all idols, and they all have their source in evil. But among all the myriad idols, there is one god, capital G, who stands out from all the others. The Lord Almighty is His name. Now, with the second phrase of the chiasm, you alone are God, David makes clear that God is not just unique among similar beings to Himself. So, I'm trying to think of one of the most unique birds that exists. So, let's say the toucan. Okay, we all love to see toucans um, in nature, and we're surprised when we see one. Um, They're incredibly unique. You cannot mistake that colorful, huge bill. But you know what? It's still a bird. No matter how unique it may look in comparison to other birds, it's still a bird. Now, God, capital G, and God's lowercase g are not the same thing. Among the gods, there is none like you, Lord. You alone are God. Only God is worthy of the name God. Only God is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. Only God is full of grace and truth. Only God is both loving and just. So David's saying, it's not like God stands out among equals. It's not that he stands out among things of the same nature. He's saying he's the only one. He's the only one. You, Lord, are the only one worthy of the title God. There is no other like you. Let's move on to the second slide. The second chiasm reveals God's incomparable acts. And you see these two that that reflect on each other. In the second part of verse 8... No deeds can compare with yours. And in the the first part of verse 10, you are great and do marvelous deeds. So David is having these two statements reflect on each other. Now, when we consider God's incomparable acts or deeds, the first thing we need to notice is that God acts. Now, that might seem very, very simple and elementary, but it's important. God is not passive. You know the song where I think Bette Midler sings that God is watching us from a distance. You know He's just watching. He's just watching. He's not acting. He's passive. Again, I remember a story from my young adolescence. I think I was in junior high, and I had gone off into this. We used to call it Matu, but it was basically an area of the city that it's called Interlagos. It's called the Boson. Back in those days. It was all dirt streets and empty lots, and some of these empty lots were really big, and I was riding bikes there with my friend Joel Rast, and uh, there was one empty lot that some people had kind of made a bike track in where you could jump off these ramps and things, and so we were riding in there, and suddenly this gang of maybe 10 other boys came in on their bikes, and uh, they proceeded to surround us, and uh... they told me that they wanted the front tire off my bike which i thought was odd in retrospect why not just take my bike but no so they forced me to get off the bike and they turned the bike over and one boy pulled out a wrench and he started taking off the front tire of my bike they were going to steal it so he got the tire off and i knew that in this neighborhood there were street guards that were in in the surrounding area so all of a sudden i just started screaming for the guard, 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 help, help. And these boys, they were about our age, so it wasn't like they were that threatening. They freaked out, and they threw down the, the tire, and they took off on their bikes. They took off running. Let me tell you something. The guard never appeared. So I walked out carrying, you know, holding my bike up on the back wheel and carrying the tire in the other hand, and Joel was walking with me, and we, we left this empty lot, and right outside there was a little guard hut little guard shack. And I said to the guard, I said, didn't you hear me calling? And the guard said, oh, we don't go in there. That's not, you know, that's not our area. We don't go in there. And maybe sometimes that's uh, the impression that we have of God. He's passive and he's distant. So he might hear, but he doesn't act. He doesn't interfere. He doesn't move. He doesn't do anything. But David says, no deeds can compare with yours, and God, you do marvelous deeds. God is not passive, he's not indifferent, he's not relaxing or resting or distracted. He acts, he does. And while the fact that God acts is important, the nature of his acts are likewise very, very important. They are incomparable. So that means his acts cannot be compared to the acts of any other entity. They're in a class of their own. My family and I a few years ago were invited to go to a vegetarian restaurant for lunch, a vegetarian buffet. But here's the detail, I didn't know it was vegetarian. So I was not aware of that. So we went to this restaurant and there was a huge buffet, it was huge. And I was excited and I was hungry. And so I took my plate, and I started going down the buffet, and I noticed nothing here looks interesting. Nothing on this buffet looks, looks attractive to me in my state of hunger until I finally came to this one dish that was ground beef, and it was mixed with, like, a tomato sauce or whatever, and I was like, finally, finally there's something here nourishing, right? So I, I took some of this ground beef, and I took a few other things, you know, some green things that they had there, and I went back to the table, And this is one of the greatest disappointments of my life, was that first bite of the ground beef. Now, it was around this point, as I just kind of tasted this, and it wasn't just the taste, it was the texture. Anyway, it led me to to eventually question and be told, oh no, this is a vegetarian restaurant. That's not meat, that's soy. That's soy protein that you're eating. Brothers and sisters, friends, and and do respect and apology to all of you who are vegetarians or vegans, but let me tell you this. Soy beef does not compare to the real thing. It's not even close. And all these diets that people talk about and say, oh, you substitute this and it's just as good as the original. No, it's not. No, it's not. And we need to accept that truth. In the same way that God's acts are so beyond compare to the acts of any other deity or entity or being. There is no comparison. They're not in the same class. They can't stand next to each other. God's acts are so much greater than any others. They can't be compared in any way, in power, in awe, in wisdom, in love. No other acts come close. And David says, not only can no deeds compare with God's, but he says they're marvelous deeds. I have never heard the word marvelous used to describe something negative. It's always, always superlatively good. Every act, every deed of God, the God, is incomparable and marvelous. Our God acts. He does. He moves. And his acts cannot be compared with any others, and they are superlatively good. Let's move on to the next slide. We come now to the central point of the chiasm. And this is in verse 9. David affirms that all the nations that God has made will come in worship. That's the first part. And then the second part is that they will bring glory to God's name. All the nations will come in worship. They will bring glory to your name. This is the point to which the psalmist wants to draw our primary attention. And where he places his emphasis on this section. The supreme authority of God. And this supreme authority is exercised over all people. This is the focal point. The authority of God is so complete that all nations he made will not only be ruled by him, but they will worship him. Now, two things here I want to mention. The first is that when the psalmist speaks of all nations, he's using a figure of speech. It's a way of saying that representatives of all the nations will worship God. We know this from other places in Scripture, right? Revelation speaks about every people, tongue, tribe, and nation, that representatives of each of those groups will be in heaven. There will be representatives of all of them worshiping the Lord. That's the first thing. The second thing is this, that this is one of the clearest statements in the Old Testament that God's plan for redemption will go far beyond just Israel. Because you know that for the Jewish people who were the chosen people of God, to whom God had revealed himself, himself, Um, through his word, through Moses, through the Ten Commandments. God had given them his word. God had entrusted his presence to them. And there was a misunderstanding on their part that that was going to be exclusively and only for them. And in the Old Testament, they are the focus. The Jewish people are the focus of God's redemptive work. But here is one of those times in the Old Testament where God is letting them know through David that his plan for redemption is much broader than just Israel. It's going to go out to all the nations. All the nations you have made will come and worship. You know what's interesting about the nations worshiping is that it reveals something about the authority of God. So it's one thing to have the authority to force The nations to act as he wants them to. But God's authority goes beyond that because God can transform the heart. So you can can physically force a body to bow, but you cannot force a heart to worship. And just as I can force myself to eat something I don't like, I can't force myself to like it. God's power over the nations is not only coercive, but it is also transformative. He can not only make them bow, but he can bring them to worship. And the second part of the central chiasm affirms that the nations will bring glory to God's name. So first, God's authority is transformative, but secondly, God can bring glory to Himself even from those who may oppose Him. And that's a truth that we see repeatedly through Scripture. How God uses even Pagan, rebellious, evil kings and people and nations to bring glory to himself and to carry out his will. From Joseph in the Old Testament, who said to his brothers, What you intended for evil, God intended for good, to the apex of redemption when the evil that condemned Jesus to the cross brought about the most glorious exaltation of Christ. We can trace the authority of God working in the nations in and through. Broken, callous, even wicked people to bring glory to his name. That is his authority. And for David, this truth lies at the center of his worship in these verses. Now, when we get to our final section, that'll be two weeks from now, David is actually going to say what his problem is, why his situation is desperate, why he's calling out to God. But he hasn't said that yet. But know this, we will understand when we get there why for David God's transformative authority over the hearts of people is essential. And why God can turn even the wicked and their intentions and their acts toward his glory. For us today, we need see that in desperate times, the supreme authority over God, over all people, is a source of comfort for his children. In times of desperation, even in our prayers, we need to pause from our struggling and look up out of the quicksand of our situation to remember who our helper is and to look at him, the one we are asking for relief we need to remember that the very reason we pray is because we believe something about God, that in some way He can answer and act on our behalf. And focusing on who it is we ask for help is part of the answer itself. It's likely going to do more to bring us peace than just struggling. And even than just asking. Now, I'm, I'm not suggesting that we don't ask, that we don't bring our needs before the Lord. David has done this in this very psalm, and he's going to continue to do it. The question that I ask is, are we out of balance, though? When we do pray, when we're bringing our requests to God, do we intentionally pause and consider who he is? Because he is the answer. It's not only that He's the provider of help, He Himself is the answer. So we struggle and we look and we try and we pray and we beg and we cry out, which we should, but then also we look to the answer. Who is the Lord God Almighty? I encourage us all, and I'm speaking to myself as well, to take time when we pray to praise, to affirm these kinds of truths about God. His incomparable acts, his supreme authority, and his His uniqueness, the fact that there's, there's no other like him. Are you desperate? Are you crying out to God for help? In the midst of your situation, take time to consciously stop the struggle, to consider that God, your God, is absolutely unique, that his acts are marvelous and incomparable, and that his authority is supreme. And you know why that's hard for us to do? At least I can speak for myself. Why this can be challenging for me is because it still requires faith. The fact that God is who he says he is and the fact that God has revealed himself in in this context in these three ways is not a guarantee that he's going to answer our prayers the way we want him to. But if these three things are true of him, then we can still rest in who he is because regardless of how he acts, It will be in a way that is concurrent with his uniqueness, his deeds, and his supreme transformative authority. And if those three things are true, then it means that he can be trusted absolutely. In short, at the end of all accounts, the way God acts and the way God answers will be for our ultimate good. Because he is able to make all grace abound to us. And he is able to work all things together for good, ultimate good, end game good, for those who love him, for those who are known according to his name. We're going to uh, affirm this morning our, our oneness in Christ by celebrating communion. And with those who are here this morning for the worship uh, who are playing and participating either in the sound or playing um, as musicians, I had shared with them the idea that the fact that we're far apart right now makes the import of communion essential. It, it's not that it's unimportant at other times, but right now we, meet, we need it more than ever because communion is, is that visible sign that points to an invisible truth. And what is the visible sign? The visible sign is the the bread and the the juice. What's the invisible reality that it's pointing to? The life of Christ in us. And that he is the unifying factor. And so the the bread and the, the juice go into our bodies and nourish it. The life of Christ is given to us by him in our souls and nourishes our souls and our life. And so the visible sign of the invisible truth and Paul says in 1 Corinthians that we are united in Christ because we all partake of one loaf. Now, that doesn't, he's not speaking literally there of one loaf of bread. He's talking about what communion points to in Christ. Christ is that loaf. He is the bread of life. He is the bread of life that has come down from heaven. And we partake of him together. And when we receive communion, That is pointing to that reality that we all partake of Christ. So we're united in Him. So you're in your own home. Maybe you're in someone else's home, your parents' home. I don't know where you are this morning. You may be thousands of miles away even from where I am right here talking. But in Christ, we are truly united. And the uniting with Him makes us united with each other even more so than being in physical proximity. So that's why we continue to celebrate communion even in these times of social distancing and distance. so A couple, not a couple, this last week I received feedback from somebody uh, that's part of Calvary and, and they sent me a message and said you know since we've been celebrating communion at home we have uh, never eaten the bread at the same time that you do <laughs> on the screen. Uh, so either we think we're supposed to eat it first and so we've eaten it first or we realize too late that you just ate it and then we're rushing to try to serve it. So. I want to tell you, this is my commitment to you all this morning, that I will, I will walk you through carefully and I will, I will tell you when to serve each other and then we'll have a pause and then I'll, I'll, tell, I'll let you know when we're going to eat and drink so that we can be doing that together at the same time. Take a couple moments in silence to reflect perhaps on what I've shared this morning. Also to ask the Holy Spirit to examine your lives so that as we receive communion we don't receive it in an unworthy fashion with consciously unconfessed sin in our lives so as the holy spirit might convict you of sin take this opportunity to confess it and repent of it to him so that you come and receive in a worthy manner